0: Luke 15, uh, you've already heard a little bit from it in the beginning of the order of service, but it goes well with our uh, sermon text. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes, they complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, Than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what man, or what woman, excuse me, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents." And he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and that citizen sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and yet I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgress your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Amen. In a reading from First Samuel. More on David and Jonathan and, of course, uh, Saul. You also meet two of Saul's daughters in this chapter. It says, now when he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul. Remember, David had just killed Goliath. And then he goes to speak with Saul right at the end of chapter 17. That's where we are. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him, David, that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. He was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. The saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. He prophesied in the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. David said to Saul, who am I? What is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merub, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David That she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, as a wife. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. Saul commanded his servants communicate with David secretly and say, "Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David, and David said, "Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed a poor and lightly esteemed man? The servants of Saul said to him, In this manner, David spoke. And Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired, Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines, not one hundred, but two. David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. And the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Jealousy and rivalry are often two, there are two terms that often go together. They are close companions, jealousy and rivalry. They are created and fanned into flame among those who are close. You're normally not jealous of people that you don't know or things you've never seen. You normally don't have rivalry with those who are far away from you. For adults, jealousy or covetousness, if we want to call it what it is, normally comes through frequent exposure. The enemy preys on that thing, that desire, that person, that relationship, and it's like pouring blood into water to attract sharks. Rivalry can be innocent, right? There are rival schools and things like that, and it's merely a fruit of competition. This is healthy, but let jealousy and covetousness mixed with rivalry and you've really got a mess on your hands. And these things are shown in the parable of the prodigal son who was jealous, right? The older son was, or the one who was home the whole time, struggles with jealousy because there's a natural rivalry among brothers. Rivalry, jealousy, and covetousness, they're bound to be involved then when you think of Saul... And David, right? David's going to succeed Saul, but also Jonathan. Saul, David, and Jonathan. David is the king to be. Saul is the king. Jonathan's in a bit of an odd place then, right? Because as you know, as history tells us, children, who is always the king after the king? Well, the son of the king, the oldest son of the king. And that's what Jonathan was. Technically, he's the heir. But Saul and his family's place at the helm is fading, as we've been hearing in 1 Samuel. And Saul is filled with jealousy. He's filled with covetousness. So Jonathan should be doing the same thing, right? He should be, for the honor of his family, hating David. After all, David is no greater than Saul. He's probably shorter than him. He's the youngest of a family. From that podunk town of Bethlehem. He's gonna be the next king. The people deserve better. Saul deserves better. My father should not be under such shame. Now, that's what might happen in certain circumstances, but not in the Lord's kingdom, the place where his spirit rules over the hearts of his people. Isaiah 11 speaks of the Lord's kingdom as a place where the wolf lies down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf with the lion the lion's going to eat straw the text says children will play with snakes why not because things will become as they aren't but because in the kingdom of God there is no harm or destruction there is only love for the Lord is known in his kingdom Jesus himself says in Luke 17, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. This is a bond that David and Jonathan shared. What else could draw Jonathan to love David like this? Because it isn't by nature that we love the Lord and his anointed. It isn't natural to love the man who is replacing your father. But Jonathan did. And why is that? Because one of the things God is doing in the life of David is the same thing he does in the life of his own son. He removes the obstacles that were in the way for his son to take the throne. He did that with Jesus, and he does it with David. Obstacles are being removed. So what is happening with Jonathan's giving of his robe, his garments, his sword, his bow, and his girdle? The, new, uh, the King James says, his lowest garment. He is symbolically affirming David as the king. He is foregoing his own natural right, as it were, to the throne. Jonathan is doing his own type of anointing of David. Remember, again, this is on the heels of David defeating Goliath. Children, you know that story. Remember it? And he's returned to the camp where everyone would have been hearing of his victory. There's another anointing scene in the immediate vicinity. Remember back in chapter 17 where David was given another set of clothes? He was given Saul's clothes, but they didn't fit. This does not seem to be a minor detail. Chapter One chapter to the next Saul's armor doesn't fit. David basically goes unclad into battle, but the key point is he doesn't go like Saul into battle. While in our reading this morning, David receives Jonathan's armor and weaponry, so he'll be going out like Jonathan, who is far more noble than his father, and he'll be going out with the love of Jonathan. That is to say, he'll be going out in brotherhood, Now, Jonathan is not, as you heard, the only one who has great affection for David in our reading this morning. We're told that all Israel and Judah love him. We're told that the servants of Saul love him. Even the women love him. (laughs) This is how a king is to be held in reverence. This is the best way for a king to go to war. It's the best way for a man to be supported in general, to go out in love. It is the best relation in which to rule. Namely, to be loved by one's own people. And a final and tragic event happens. We haven't got to chapter 31 yet, but in chapter 31, as the Lord removes the obstacles of David's reign, Jonathan and Saul die on the same day at the hands of the Philistines. And until that moment... Saul is going to do everything he can, humanly speaking, to create a rivalry between David and Jonathan. It seems one can say with great certainty that when Saul brings David into court, verse 2, he's doing it to watch him. Saul wants to keep tabs on David because he is growing more and more afraid of him. Maybe you noticed that as we read through the text. It's mentioned a couple times. Saul feared David. Saul feared David. He grew in fear of David. Thankfully, our Lord knows all and is one who sabotages the plans of the wicked, assuring that his servant, the man after God's own heart, would indeed take the throne. Let me take a sidestep here for a moment. I'm going to say some stuff that might alarm you, but let me tell you, if you've not heard of this before, your children will hear it. It is an argument that is in the world to defend things like homosexuality. It is important for you to know that David and Jonathan were not Homosexual. That argument is a common argument made in defense of homosexuality from the Bible and ultimately to overthrow the authority of Scripture in general. I don't know when this first came to be pushed in false Christianity. It doesn't come from Christians. But it is not uncommon at all to read articles online, to read citations used in books and even art depicting them being romantically Involved, I have an overall point to get to this, but it's important for you to know it is not at all necessary from the text to say this because the love that Jonathan has for David is simply the love that Jesus requires of his disciples. They push David and Jonathan being gay. Because they know that one of the greatest dangers to our corrupt society, one of the greatest dangers to corruption in general, one of the most powerful weapons that could be formed against them is this for men to be friends. For men to be friends. This is how the enemy twists the truth. And your brains, like mine, are easily manipulated. Be honest. Anything that begins to get close to true masculine friendship, you kind of rub up against it and you're like, is this gay? Right? Men don't need friends, they're men, right? (laughs) You're a Christian, so you, you don't want that. You draw away from it, you draw away from brotherhood. The thing is, if you have no brotherhood, there is no community power. That could ever arise. There is no such thing as a group or a collective that could ever arise. Armies become feminized. This is why they're doing it. They will be filled by men who are full of vice. Or worse, they'll be filled by women. And they have no idea to form bonds with other men, and they don't want to or to relate to other powerful figures. They don't know how to do it. It would be a threat to them. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He seems to care about friendship. He's very, closely, uh, very clearly saying that part of what drove him to the death of the cross is his love for his friends. Friends. Also in John 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And let me ask you men, how many friends do you have? I, I don't, you know, no, not that more is better. Do you have any Because I know several older men who have no friends, not a one, right? Not saying more is better. But if we want to build anything, if we want to stand against the forces that would have us be drugged down, we're going to need friends. We're going to need brotherhood. The focus of this chapter It's the various responses to David. We've talked about Jonathan's, that Holy Spirit wrought love. We're familiar with Saul's, that of the women, Saul's servants, even all of Israel and all of Judah, we're told. But how about the Lord's response to David? One writer says this, chapter 18 is built around a contrast, not so much between David and Saul as between reactions to David. David prospered. Wherever he went, and did you know that the word for prosper can also be translated as act wisely. His prosperity and his wisdom was a sign that the Lord was with him. Close quote. That's the Lord's reaction to David. He's with him, granting him and giving him prosperity and wisdom. And this primes the pump for this tragic revelation about Saul that has already been declared in previous chapters. And is slowly being revealed more and more. His hardness towards David reveals his hardness towards God. It eats him up. He has absolutely no patience for any approval of David. The singing of women leads Saul to be very angry, or as the King James says, very wroth, full of wrath. He has basically become a moody and emotional tyrant. And if he doesn't get the praise, attention, and love, then whoever does will be the object of his hatred. It almost seems at times that if Saul could himself had just been known for showering showering David with affection, then that was okay, so long as no one outdid him. He was so obsessed with attention that as long as he was giving the attention, it would have been okay. You see, he isn't the only one, though, who has his eye on David. All Israel... And Judah and the Lord of Israel and Judah do as well. The heart of David and the heart of Saul, the comparison between the leadership in waiting and the leadership on the way, it reminds us, uh, on the way out, excuse me, reminds us so much of the Gospels. David points to Jesus, Saul points to the corrupt leadership of Israel that crucified Jesus. The heart of David and the heart of Saul is revealed in one scene as well by what's in their hands. Saul would have his way with wrath and violence. He threw the spear. The text actually says that David played with his hand as before, not David played the harp. He played with his hand. There's a draw to the hands of the two men here. Unless you think that all violence is wrong, there is a time for violence. Maybe you'd be more comfortable with calling it battle or warfare. But the text tells us that David is known for violence as well in the text. You might say, I didn't see that, pastor. Well, the words are this. When it says he went out and came in before the people, that's kingly language. When kings are um, uh, praised in the Bible, one of the phrases that you'll see is that they went out and went in before the people. Right? They would go out to battle and they would return because they were victorious. It's a kingly description. And the people love David for this. He's fulfilling his kingly calling even before the throne is his. This is how you gain the love of the righteous. You do what you ought to do even before it's time for everyone to notice you doing it. And this, of course, it fills Saul with more and more rage. You could imagine him like a, a boiling pot, as it were. He sets his eye on David even more firmly. He has a desire like the wicked in the Proverbs to cause the righteous to stumble. And ironically, I don't know if you picked up on this, but ironically, what Saul does to David in this scene is basically the same thing that David does to Uriah. Right? David's worst moment as a king comes when he realizes he doesn't need to get his hands dirty to take out the man that's in the way, but he finds another way to do it. Saul's trying to do the same thing with David, using the Philistines to get rid of David, just like David used the enemy to get rid of Uriah. Saul is in a situation where he can't really get away with doing anything to David himself. He's going to try that enemy over there, and he's also going to try to use his daughter's He's going to have his daughters do it or he's going to have the Philistines do it. It doesn't matter so long as he doesn't have to do it directly. But the thing is, even in the attempt to trap David with his daughters, he fails to understand the purity of David's heart. Because when he receives this invitation to marry Saul's daughters, he's honored. He's ecstatic. He's humbled. Who am I to be a member of the king's family. Saul did understand that humanly speaking, women cause men to make dumb decisions all the time, whether the woman is cognizant of it or not. There is something that you might overlook in the text that also serves to undermine Saul. And he thinks this is a good thing at first, but it ultimately proves to his demise. It's the love of Michal for David. In the chapter or the two chapters following, I can't exactly remember, there's a scene where Saul is coming to kill David. And she puts a household idol in the bed as if it were David so that he can run away. And Saul thinks that you know the idol is uh, David. That could probably be why Saul thinks that McCall can uh, cause David to stumble because she is one who is given to idolatry. Maybe that's what it was. But it isn't said about the other daughter that she loved David, but it is said about this one, that she would, call it what you will, use her idols to save David's life. Her love for David leads her to protect him, albeit in a way that is certainly complicated. It is Saul's aim to set a snare. Children, think like a bear trap. Saul is laying all these traps around for David to step in, but of course he will not be successful. The darkness of Saul's heart, because of his jealousy, it is remarkable. He wanted David dead. And this is what sin does to you. It literally makes you stupid. Because Saul was willing to get David killed regardless of how it would affect his daughters. Regardless of how it would affect his son. Regardless of how it would affect his own reign as a king, regardless of how it would affect his own personal safety, for David was one of the best warriors, regardless of how it would affect his own country as a whole, he just wanted David dead. It's possible that Saul wanted David gone so that he could step into this power vacuum. A vacuum is created when authority or authoritative and powerful men are. Uh, removed from a situation. Maybe Saul wanted to keep the authority and be praised by men. That certainly seems to be the case. He understood that someone has to lead. When there's no strong men to lead, weak men will do just fine. Friends, don't be fooled. This is what weak men do. They are often more adept as well at sensing threats than strong men are. They'll often seek to create environments where all the praise goes to them. This happens in marriage, too. Weak spouses will sabotage the other in order to win the hearts of their children. The workplace is a common arena for this, right? Where the gifted are sabotaged by those who are less gifted for the sake of power and authority. The political realm, that's all politics is, right? Sabotaging. Maybe you could think of other... Examples. In many ways, this passage is a warning against naivete, being naive. This passage is, like all scripture, a means that the Lord, I believe, wants to use to wake you up. And what do you need to be awakened to this morning? Well, to put it quite simply, the wicked hate you and want to bring you down. The wicked hate you and they want to bring you down. They hate you, they hate your family, and they hate everything you stand for. And let me tell you this. Men, this is especially true of you. Men are the first target of the enemy. Think of Pharaoh killing not all the Hebrew girls when they were born, but the Hebrew baby boys. Why is this? Because that's where the power resides, where the strength is, where the armies will be raised out of. Women ultimately become a target too. But the men are targeted first. You take the men out, the women are defenseless. All of us must know today that we must pursue wise living. We have the surety of the Lord being with us. Christ promised it to the apostles and by extension all Christians. And part of living wisely is seeing in the life of the saints of old, in the word of God especially, living wisely is doing things like David did, going above and beyond in doing what is expected of us, not just getting by. Now, what am I talking about? Was well, when he went and killed 200 Philistines instead of one, right? He gave the enemy no quarter, not an inch, to use against him. You want me to go kill 100? That's fine. I'll go kill 200. David understood what was at stake. But he can only do this because of the place from where his help came. His help came from the Lord. The Lord prospered him. The Lord was with him. The Lord kept him. The maker of heaven and earth. We'll sing Psalm 121 in just a moment. Children of the Lord, especially you young ones, you're going to sing that the Lord does not sleep. Instead, He keeps His own. He guards you. He is your constant shade. doesn't shade, feel so wonderful on a hot day, even bringing you peace at night, the shade of your home. We cannot be those who are consumed with things like jealousy. We cannot be those that fail to live wisely among our enemies. The Lord Jesus Christ has conquered and is conquering all of His and our enemies. And because he has conquered and is conquering, he's greater than Saul. He's greater than David. No one can ultimately harm the Christian. And you're going out and you're coming in to all the battles of life. Even if you don't have to leave your home, you are kept safe by and in the Lord. And rest assured that your enemy feels and acts the way that they do because they are afraid. Because they are afraid. You will become their enemy continually. People will misread your friendships. People will tell you not to have friendships. You don't have time for that after all. People will persuade you against the word of God. But you must be their enemy continually. Knowing that in the Lord, by Christ, and the power of his might, you are kept safe even when you're close at home facing those like Saul or if you're far away from home facing those like the Philistines. I call you this morning to rejoice in all things indeed I say rejoice. The Son of God the greatest king was manifested to destroy the works of the devil who is our greatest enemy. Amen. Let's pray.